Well, good evening. We'll try that one more time. Good evening. Much better. This evening we are finishing out our series of studies in the book of James. So you can turn with me to James chapter 5, verse 13. And we've been talking about having a powerful faith. And as we talk about powerful faith, last week we saw that faith is powerful in suffering. In suffering. This evening we're going to see that faith is powerful in prayer and in truth. And uh, it's always great to study the book of James. There's never a bad time to study it, but right now just being encouraged from James to, to trust in God through difficult times, to have a persevering faith, a faith that's proven in and through our lives, and, and now we see a powerful faith. It's just, it's just incredibly encouraging. These studies are just, um, I think they're impactful because they're very practical, very practical. And I don't think that this evening will be any exception. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this book of James, this precious book in your Bible. And over the last many weeks, we have been studying this, and we have really received from you your wisdom, your direction, your guidance, your encouragement. And so we thank you for that. We pray that you'd speak to us tonight about prayer and truth and give us insight and understanding that we might live our lives for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, God wants us to pray, and God wants us to pray in faith when we're in need. So sometimes God allows us to be in need. In fact, if we're really honest, we're always in need. Amen? We're always in need. We don't always realize it, but when we come to the conclusion that we have a need, we either respond in one of two ways. We try to meet that need, or we cry out to God who meets our needs. Now, there are times where we need to step up to the plate and do things to bring about a, a means of our needs being met. Like, for example, if you're hungry and you're not working, you're not making money, uh, clearly when you go to the supermarket, you're not going to be able to buy food, and that's, that's on you. But God meets our needs, so maybe you're looking for a job and you can't find one, and you're trying really hard to find one, but have you cried out to God and asked him to bring you one? Because I can tell you perfect examples, many perfect examples of people who have just realized that they weren't going to find the job that God had for them on their own. So they cried out to God, and God brought them the job. They still had to show up for work. But that job was a blessing from God because God meets our needs, and God wants us to pray in faith. That is faith, not just praying, but actually believing. Praying in faith when we're in need. And so we read, and I'm going to read verses... uh, Three through the, uh, 13 through the first uh, part of verse 15 in James chapter 5. And, and James asks a couple of questions, sets up a couple of scenarios. The first is this, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is, is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith, will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. Just a few needs that we need to pray for, things that happen on a regular basis in our lives. But I think the first thing in verse 13 that comes out loud and clear is we're called to pray at all times. There's really not a time we're not called to pray. In fact, Paul says, I believe to the Thessalonians, pray constantly or pray unceasingly. Pray without ceasing. It is a part of our lives. In fact, I would say that for the Christian, prayer is most likened to breathing. It's something we should do without thinking about it. Now, the thing about it, if you stop and think about breathing, then, you know, you kind of override your body's automatic breathing uh, muscles. But if you drift off to sleep, your body just continues to breathe on its own. Pretty cool, right? Isn't that a good thing? Your heart continues to beat. Your blood continues to pump in your body. Can you imagine what would happen if it didn't? You'd die. Now, the thing about prayer is that we should, at times, override our sort of natural tendency towards being in prayer at all times by specifically praying. But our default position should be that of just sort of like breathing, always sort of praying our way through life. And it can be as simple as, oh, Lord, get me through this day. Oh, Lord, this is really tough. Lord, be with me. Oh, Lord, this printer's broken down again. Please help me to fix it. 
I pray those kind of prayers many times. I was trying to get a snowblower started the other day, and I laid hands on it. Didn't work, but I did lay hands on it. And so, you know, I, I know that we can live our lives in such a way where we're constantly in prayer, and that's what James wants us to remember. You see, prayer is able to comfort us when we're suffering when we're enduring hardship or being afflicted. We've talked about this already, but prayer is what gets us through those times of suffering. Prayer. And it says, if, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Every one of us has moments of trial and tribulation and trouble, but prayer is able to comfort us in those times. And some afflictions, some afflictions we experience are healed by God through prayer. They really are. Some are not. Now, I haven't experienced many, many miracles in my life. I have experienced some, uh, I'm not going to start a healing service every Thursday night or anything like that. But I, I have experienced situations in my life and in the lives of others where God has touched people and taken away pain or helped them through a, a difficult situation. Remember one of the first experiences I had, I, I was just a Christian a few months. And you know when your wisdom teeth start to come in? I don't know, you guys, some of you are probably too young to know what wisdom teeth are. But anyway... I think the truth of the matter is when your tooth aches, when you, you've got that pain in your jaw, it's like you can't think of anything else. And I just come from Bible study, and the whole Bible study, my, my jaw was just pounding. And uh, we were sitting at a diner over on Route 17, because the Bible study was in Hasbrook Heights. And someone asked me, hey, you know, you okay? Everything all right? I said, ah, just my wisdom tooth is hurting. By the way, they all came in. I'm good. They didn't have to take them out. But, you know, they hurt when they're coming in. Not a big deal. I wasn't going to die. And this one woman, her name is Karen, she, she said, can we pray for you? And I said, oh, wow, that's kind of cool. I think it was one of the first times anybody ever, like, did that in a restaurant with me, you know. And uh, she prayed. I think we were at the IHOP or the diner. And uh, she prayed, and the pain went away, like, immediately. I don't know why God did that at that particular moment in my life, but it made me realize something early on in my walk. You can pray about anything. And God can alleviate pain and 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 discomfort if he chooses to. And I think he just used that in my life to show me that. Now, there have been times where I had a headache and it didn't go away just because I prayed about it. But I just, I just really think it's probably a good first step to pray when you're in trouble or you have need or you're being afflicted. Of course, some are healed by God through prayer and some are not. I can't explain that. I can tell you that that's true. But God often allows us to experience sickness by his sovereign will. Now, some of you guys have, have, have had COVID, some of you guys have not, and some of you guys have recovered without any issues, and maybe some of you have some lingering issues. But I know God allowed you to get sick. I'm not saying God invented the virus. He wasn't like working in Wuhan to create this virus. This was something that happened, happens in the world, and God allowed it, and he got you through it, and there's some people that didn't get through it. And there's some people still struggling with it. There's a lot of people very afraid of it. But God does allow us to experience sickness according to his will. God is also able to keep you healthy if he chooses to do that. And I've I've been asking the Lord to keep me healthy, but I ask the Lord to keep me healthy all the time. Long before COVID, we would go into the flu season. And, you know, I wouldn't hug anybody. It's not like, you know, we used to actually, remember, we used to hug and kiss people and stuff. Remember those days? Like a year ago. But, um, but I, I, around the winter, I stopped that, and I would generally either shake someone's hand or fist bump them, or if I hugged them, I didn't kiss them. You know, I was just being careful because flu season is flu season, right? I mean, it's just smart, right? But I would try to stay healthy through the winter. My motivation was I didn't want to get sick, but a bigger motivation is if I'm sick, I can't be here. And this is where God has called me to be. So I always pray, God, keep me healthy that I might serve you. I don't think there's anything wrong with praying a prayer like that. There have been times where I couldn't come to church because I was sick and God had another plan. But God may be using trouble in our lives to get our attention and cause us to pray. I can remember one particular time when I was burning the candle at, you know, every end. I was working in the city in ministry. I was working my full-time job out in central Jersey, doing a million other things on top of that. And uh, I just got run down. I got sick and I was laying on a couch. I think Michelle was at work and I'm like, oh, why? You know, you do that. Why? It's the man cold. Why, Lord? And uh, the Lord really kind of made it clear. He wanted me to slow down. And he wanted me to stop killing myself. And 
I actually was able to pray because I really didn't feel like doing anything else. He said, maybe watch a little TV or read. So sometimes God will use trouble or sickness or difficulty in our lives, and he'll do that to get our attention and cause us to pray. Trouble, too. Challenges, difficulties, financial hardships. God will use them. Even though he may not be the author of them, he'll use them to get you to pray. And then once you start to live a life of prayer, breathing in, breathing out, breathing in like prayer is a part of your life, then he doesn't have to use those things to do that because you're already in the place you need to be. So, if you're interested in avoiding unnecessary trouble, pray at all times. So, if you're in trouble, you should pray. If you're happy, what do you do when you're happy? Well, happy is better than being in trouble, but prayer should take the form of praise when we're in good spirits and filled with joy. Now, here's the thing. You're either in trouble or you're not, and if you're not in trouble, you should be happy. There's some people that are never happy. There's some people that never praise the Lord. They're always complaining about something. And believe me, there's plenty to complain about. I went to the supermarket on my way to church. Michelle and I went in there. And from the minute I walked in there to the moment when the cashier let me put all of my items on the belt and then put on the sign that said she's closed, from that moment, I was aggravated. People walking around with their phone, not looking where they're going, moving carts around, filled with like cans of soda, kill somebody. And I'm just trying to get in and out of the store. Michelle's got the list. We're just trying to... And you know what? There's always a reason you can find to be angry, discontented, or complain. Places like Costco, places like Trader Joe's, you're, you're, wherever you go, driving on the road, you, you're going to find reason to do that. And what I struggle with is in those times being happy. Now, the thing about it is we're not promised happiness. Happiness is, is like a bonus. It just kind of happens sometimes. <laughs> you can have joy at all times in Christ. But happiness is one of those things you have it sometimes, and sometimes you got trouble. And when you have trouble, you're not happy. But happiness, when you do have happiness, what are you going to do with that? Well, one of the things you want to do when you're happy, and I'm, I'm keep thinking about that kid song, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. But no, it's not clap your hands. Raise your hands. Praise the Lord. Okay, if you're happy and you know it, praise the Lord. I think that's part of it. I think that's actually the last chorus in Sunday school. At least when I used to lead kids worship. So, you know, what I do know is that we can, as it says here, if anyone's happy, let them sing songs of praise. Now, what that means is you cry out good things, things that are true about God. And you know what happens Even if you're not happy and you do that, you get happy. Or at least you get filled with joy, which is a fruit of the Spirit. But when you are happy, rather than finding a reason not to be happy, which some people are like expert at, probably a good idea to just praise the Lord. Oh, Lord, I'm so happy. Thank you, Lord. It can be something silly like your team won the game, or it can be just you got a raise. It can be just you feel great. You know, you got your favorite meal at a restaurant, you're happy, there's nothing. You don't have to be ashamed of being happy as a Christian. You'd think some Christians, you know, God forbid they're happy. But praise the Lord. When it happens, and and let's hope it happens every day, but if there's a moment when you're happy, just say, oh, Lord, I'm so happy. Praise the Lord. Praise you, Jesus. That becomes like the breathing part of it because it is prayer. Praise is prayer. So you're praying at all times. So it's a good thing. Well, you got nothing to complain about? Praise the Lord. If you do this, if you're constantly praying at all times, and you're going to be connected to Jesus at all times, and your life will be exponentially better if you pray at all times. Amen? You know, singing, it's mentioned here, singing, has always been a part of the Christian church. There are some weird churches that don't allow singing, believe it or not. I've met a few Christians over the years that said, oh, my church, we don't sing. Or we sing, but we don't play instruments. Or we only have an organ. You know, you hear all these like little rules where who knows where they came from. Because David certainly, and I like to say this because I play several stringed instruments. David wrote psalms. Psalms are by definition songs that are sung with the accompaniment of a stringed instrument. So you know that stringed instruments are fine. Actually, any instrument's fine. When you get to the end of the book of Psalms, it talks a lot about the different instruments you can use to praise the Lord, including cymbals and drums. Imagine that. You don't have to be a Pentecostal to praise the Lord with cymbals and drums. So singing 
rejoicing. That's supposed to be part of our Christian experience when we come together. Is it? You know, there's some Christians that sneak in late because they want to miss the worship. Believe it or not, someone actually had the nerve. I was a worship leader before I became a, a, an assistant pastor and, and even a senior pastor. And I actually overheard someone say, oh, I come in after the worship. And I'm thinking to myself, that's intentional on your part? Brothers and sisters, singing has always been a part of the Christian church. I remember when I first went to church, like a church, a modern church, a contemporary church, because I grew up in a traditional church with the organ. And I, I think I remember, I think it was Richie Fure. We were just talking about him last night, too. And he was leading worship on a guitar. Now, those of you who don't know Pastor Richie, um, he was with Buffalo Springfield and Poco. And, you know, he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know. So he's up there leading worship. And I'm like, are we supposed to sing? Like, I thought you only sing with a guitar around the campfire. And I got used to this idea that you could sing and praise the Lord in church to a guitar. I'd never seen it done before. I know sometimes it takes a little bit for us to adjust, but you're missing out on a huge part of what God has for you if you don't sing praise to the Lord. Amen? Christians should be known by their fondness for praise. Their fondness for praise. Not by their, not by their political views or their complaints, but by their fondness for praise. In fact, in Ephesians and Colossians, in Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, it talks about singing hymns, songs, and, you know, hymns, psalms, and spiritual songs, making melody in your heart to the Lord. That is who we should be. Okay, that's one type of prayer. But now we're going to talk about intercessory prayer. Because we're called to ask others to pray for us and care for us when we're sick. We read it already. It says this in verse 14. Is any one of you sick, you should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer, notice the prayer, offered in faith will make the sick person well and the Lord will raise him up. We'll stop right there for now. Now, sick in the original language. Sick can mean weak. It can mean feeble. It can mean without strength. It can mean powerless. It can mean needy. It can, need, it can mean poor. It can mean infirmed, which is like having a debilitating disorder, being crippled or handicapped. It can mean all of those things. Basically, if you're in a situation where you need help, you can ask others to pray for you. Amen? And in fact, it says you should call the elders of the church. Now, the elders, the elders are, by definition, the pastor's the overseers, the leaders in the church. It doesn't have to be a pastor or an elder by definition, but someone who's a leader in the church. Why would you ask one of them? Well, first of all, that's kind of why we're here. It's part of our calling. Uh, also, if you ask one of the elders, uh, you know that they will have maybe a little bit more understanding of how to pray, and, and they also are in a position to be able to help you a little bit, you know, uh, in whatever way they can. In fact, some of that's alluded to here. When it says... To anoint someone with oil. Did you see what that says here? It's not like all of a sudden um, the elders of the church, like we have a medical degree or anything, but he should call the elders of the church to pray over him. But then he says, and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now there is a lot of confusion about what this means. A lot of confusion. But I'm going to explain to you what it really means. To anoint someone simply means to wash them or clean them up. About the best example I can give you is if you were to fall and scrape your knee, like a lot of the kids were doing in the summertime, if you remember, they're running around the parking lot and inevitably knees got scraped, hands got scraped, right? Heads got bumped. You would take that child, you would clean out that scrape or that wound or that cut. You'd bandage it up if it was necessary. You might even put a little bit of uh, bacitrate or some type of... Uh, antibacterial on there, and you'd be set. That's practical medicine. It's not like doing surgery. It's just practical. First aid, anybody can do that. You don't have to have a medical license to put a Band-Aid on somebody, right? That's really what we're talking about here. If you look at the original language, it means to wash them or to clean them up. This is not the word used for sacred and religious anointing. And that's where people make the mistake. They think that when it says anointing with oil, that it's like the anointing of Aaron the high priest 
or some type of a spiritual anointing. It's actually not. It's a practical medicinal application. It's actually just more a matter of hygiene and medicine than something spiritual. In fact, I'm going to read something from Isaiah chapter 1, verses 5 through 6. God is speaking to his people through Isaiah. And I want you to see the context in which this understanding of anointing is used. He says, why should you, in verse 5 of chapter 1 in Isaiah, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured. Your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and welts and open sores. So there's the medical problem. Now, again, he's speaking in an analogy, but he's still speaking about physical wounds. He says, they're open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. See, I, I point that out to you because that's how oil was used, among many other uses. Oil was used as a medicine. In fact, and I encourage you to look into this, I'm not going to read it now, <clears throat> but in Luke chapter 10, verse 30, <clears throat> you remember the Good Samaritan? Well, in the account that Jesus shared, the, the Good Samaritan finds that person on the side of the road who's totally wounded and in bad shape, roughed up, and it says that he put oil and wine on his wounds. Now, you guys know wine, if you had alcohol of any kind, that, that sort of disinfects the wound. Oil is also a disinfectant, but it's sort of a long-term disinfectant. If you put oil on a wound, it keeps the wound from becoming infected again or in the future. Whereas the wine or the, or the uh, vinegar of some type or something with alcohol in it even will actually clean out the wound. Now, you, you didn't have CVS and Walgreens in those days. So what did he have? He had oil and wine, so he used it to clean up the individual who was on the side of the road. So there's two examples, but I'm just trying to make you see that you don't need to turn this into something super spiritual. It's actually incredibly practical. Again, more a matter of hygiene and medicine than something spiritual. Therefore, it is incorrect to anoint someone spiritually to bring physical healing. You can't use this verse for that. You can't anoint someone spiritually to try to bring physical healing. A spiritual anointing is a spiritual anointing. This is an anointing or a washing or a cleansing. Practical medicine, let's call it that. First aid. It is right to seek medical help in addition to asking for prayer. You know, some Christians will say, well, I have faith, so I'm not going to the doctor. You know, I have faith, so I'm not going to go to the hospital, even though I think I need stitches. Oh, I have faith. I believe I'm going to be okay. So even though this wound looks infected, I'm sure it'll be okay. L listen, I prayed. Therefore, I'm not going to seek any medicine. Th that's actually the opposite of what James is saying. Seek spiritual counsel and prayer, obviously, absolutely. But he includes anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. That administer that first aid, administer whatever that person needs, administer what you can to them in addition to praying for them, and do it in the name of Jesus. Do it in the name of Jesus. You know, that's exactly what, for hundreds of years, many doctors and nurses have done in Christian hospitals. They've used medicine but they've done it in the name of the Lord. I'm not talking about secular hospitals. I'm talking about a lot of Catholic hospitals and other hospitals that were founded by Christian missionaries and Christian organizations. They understood it wasn't enough to just pray for people, but they needed to administer some type of medicine in many cases. You know, many times me uh, missions are medical missions for a reason. A lot of people have great medical needs. And the church is called to the best of their ability to meet those needs. Again, not saying we do surgery, but there's a certain amount that even the elders of the church can easily do, any of us can easily do, and that's more what James is talking about here than anything else. It is right to seek medical help in addition to asking for prayer when you need it. Both the prayer and the care should be done in Jesus' name and not our own. That's the key right there. In the name of the Lord. 
And notice it says in the prayer. Does it say that the oil? No. Does it say, does it say anything else? The person with the gift of healing? No, it says the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. And the Lord will raise him up. You see, there is power in prayer. God heals through prayer. Even if you don't apply first aid or oil or do anything medicinal, you pray for the person in Jesus' name, and you know this, God will, if he chooses, raise that person up through prayer. It's prayer that heals a person. God heals them through prayer. It's not the oil. It's not a special thing that you got to do. It's not coming up and getting knocked over. It's none of those things. It is prayer. Amen? It is prayer because it's God working through prayer. And that's all James wants us to know here. Prayer in faith is the method by which God brings physical healing. And he does bring physical healing. Healing has always been a part of the Christian church. Always. And unfortunately, by abandoning its responsibility for the sick, the church has lost its power to heal. See, I think the reason we don't see the kind of healing in the, in the church uh, that we may have seen in the first and second centuries. I think the reason we don't see it is because nowadays we just say, oh, you're sick, go to the doctor. And that's smart. But where's the prayer? Where's the prayer and the medicine? Where's the prayer and the care? So I would suggest, not that we're going to save our medical bills, but I would suggest that when you are sick, you follow James' advice. Follow James's advice. He says, if any one of you is sick, you should call the elders. That is, you call your leaders, you ask for prayer, And you ask the church to pray over you, and then you get the help you need medicinally as well. Anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. So that's, that's good news. Okay, the next thing that's asked here by James. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Now, he links that sin to the sickness, and there's a reason for that. We are called to confess our sins to one another, to pray for each other. We are called, we are called to do that, to confess our sins. Look what it says. Let me read on. It says, if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. So as it relates to confession of sin, let's break this down. We are called to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. But let's be careful here. Sickness is mentioned for a reason. Because sickness is sometimes, sometimes, let me be careful, let me say it again, sometimes the consequence of unconfessed sin. We saw it in 1 Corinthians. Paul talked about it there in chapter 11. Sometimes, sometimes, it's the result of just God's will. And then sometimes it's because there's a sin. And that sin needs to be confessed. And God will use sickness to bring you to the place of confessing your sin. So Paul warns those that would receive communion in an unworthy manner, that is, without repentance. He warns those that would receive communion in unbelief, that is, they're they're taking the communion, but they don't really believe it. They don't believe what it represents. He warns them of the Lord's discipline. You see, he he told them in 1 Corinthians 11, that their physical infirmities were in fact the result of their sinning in this way. There was sin in their lives and they were infirmed physically. That can happen too. Again, sometimes. Some had died. Isn't that something? Some had died because of their unwillingness to examine their own hearts. And brothers and sisters, the Lord will use sickness and affliction to discipline us. Why will he do that? Well, he disciplines us in order to rescue us from judgment. Amen? Discipline rescues us from judgment. So God works through sickness. He may not be the author of sickness, but he works through it. And this is one of the ways he brings us to a place of confessing our sins. It's amazing when you're really sick how you're much more willing to confess your sin. (laughs) I don't know why that is, except that I guess God knows we have to be brought low for him to lift us up. Now, confession. Let's be careful here because it says this. It says... Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I just want to stop there and be careful because verses like this have been used by some churches to suggest that you should confess all of your sins to a priest or a pastor or a leader. That's not properly contextualized there. You see, what we're really seeing is that confession is always necessary 
when we've sinned against another person. If you've sinned against someone else, confession is absolutely necessary. You should confess that sin to God, but you should confess it to the other person. You ask for forgiveness. That much is clear. We receive the forgiveness of others through personal confession. Jesus made that clear in the Sermon on the Mount. We do. We receive the forgiveness of others through personal confession, and we receive the forgiveness of God through private confession. So if you've sinned against God, confess your sins to God. If you've sinned against someone else, confess your sins to God and to someone else, to that person that you have sinned against. That's really what we're being told here. Remember, we receive forgiveness only if we ourselves will forgive others. Do you remember what Jesus said about that? Again, back to the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. If you don't forgive others their sins, neither will you be forgiven. So confession is a very important aspect of prayer. And we've talked about a lot of different types of prayer here. Supplication, that is crying out for your needs to be met. Praise or adoration, which is praising God when things are good. Intercession, that is someone praying for you when you're sick. Uh, We talked about confession, confessing your sins when there's unconfessed sin in your life. These are all different types of prayer. And then it says, uh, pray for each other so that you may be healed. The implication there is there is some sickness that's in our lives to bring us to a place of confession so God can heal us. And sometimes it requires you confessing that sin to someone else that you've sinned against. Most sins, most sins are against God and others. Most sins. Some sins are only against God, but most sins are against God and others. And so we receive forgiveness only if we ourselves will forgive others. So we need to make sure that we're as forgiving as we can be and that we ask for forgiveness whenever we need to. Prayer is able to heal sickness that is the consequence of unconfessed sins. So, if you have sickness in your life or trouble in your life or something going on that God has allowed because you refuse to confess your sin, and in particular a sin that you may have sinned against someone else, but also a sin against God, if you refuse to do that, God is going to bring you to a place where maybe the trouble or the sickness will cause you to confess your sins so you can be healed, as it says here. Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other. Notice also, pray for each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. We're told there also that the prayer of a righteous man or woman, a righteous person, is powerful and effective. And it's so important to understand that that is so true. It is powerful. It is effective. That's what we're talking about today. There's power in prayer and Prayer is effective. That means, guess what? Listen, it works. You know, if you buy something online, it gets delivered to the house. You get all excited. You go out to the stoop. There it is. You bring it inside. You plug it in, and it doesn't work. You're not so excited anymore. In fact, now you're aggravated because now you know what you got to do, right? You got to pack it all back up again, put it in a box, bring it down to the UPS store, to the post office, and send it out and wait for your refund. Unless you bought it from Costco, then you can bring it back to the store. But all that to say that it's not as exciting when it doesn't work, right? You go through all that trouble, what was an exciting moment suddenly is an aggravating moment because it doesn't work. You will never, ever, ever feel that way with prayer. You're never going to say, well, that was a complete waste of time. And if you do, it means you don't really know God or understand what prayer is. Oh, I prayed for for three days and nothing happened. Oh, that was a complete waste of time. Prayer is never a complete waste of time. It's never a waste of time. And what we're told here is it's effective. The prayer of a righteous man, notice a righteous man is powerful and effective. Let's be clear, the righteous man or woman is the one that's righteous in Christ. Amen? Not your own righteousness, his righteousness. So if you're in Christ, your prayers should be, could be, would be powerful and effective if you but believe by faith. That's what we're being told there. We're called to live righteous lives before others. Now, some of that righteousness is imputed to us. I mean, all righteousness is imputed to us from Christ. But some of the righteousness we're talking about here is just being right, doing the right thing, okay? Just living right. And that's what really, really the most important thing is. Are you doing the right thing? Are you confessing your sins? Are you praying for each other? But are you doing the right thing? Because the person who does the right thing, their prayers are powerful and effective. Because they're doing the right thing, not doing the wrong thing. There's no unconfessed sin in their lives. There's nothing to get in the way of their prayers before God or their confession of sins to others. Everything's just open. 
God can use and work in a person's life like that. He, he exalts the humble. He resists the proud, but he exalts the humble. So James wants us to know that. Our prayer will be powerful if our lives are consistent with our profession of faith. Our prayers will be powerful if our lives are consistent with our profession of faith. Now, this type of prayer is effective. It works. In that it actively seeks and asks God to meet needs. See, that's why it's effective, because you're saying, Lord, meet my needs. Give me this day my daily bread. Give me what I need, Lord. That's why it's effective. And it's powerful in that it's able to achieve its objective. So yes, I believe in the power of prayer. But my flesh doesn't. I'm going to be honest. My flesh thinks prayer is a complete waste of time. Ain't nobody's flesh here enjoy prayer. And be honest about it. You look at your watch when you're praying sometimes, right? You're at a prayer meeting. It's like, man, how long are you going to pray? Somebody prays a little too long. You start thinking bad thoughts. Man, this guy's praying a long time. We used to go to a prayer meeting uh, back in the day when Michelle and I just first met and even when we were first married. And there was one dear sister, and she prayed about everything. Everything. Out loud. And she had what I can only describe as a hypnotic accent. Because as soon as she started to pray, I started to sleep. It was just the, the, the sound, the droning sound of her voice. It was just like, oh, Lord, we thank you. I was out. One time at a prayer meeting, I actually put my head back on the couch and fell asleep. Your prayer should be powerful and effective, but it's not going to be because you like prayer or because your flesh likes prayer. It's going to be because of your relationship with God. By faith, you recognize the power and effectiveness of prayer, and you do it anyway. Amen? You do it anyway. Have you ever noticed when you need prayer, you have no problem asking for prayer? Oh, pray, pastor, pray for it, pray, pray for this, pray for that. I hear people all the time. I never get that like, oh, praise the Lord, our prayers were answered. All I get is that open-ended pray, and then I never know what happened. Sometimes, though, if I got an email, I'll email back and say, like a week or two later, hey, you got any uh, update? Because I want to know. Not so I can stop praying, but I, I would like to know that our prayers were answered. So let me just say, to the degree that you communicate prayer requests, communicate praise reports. That builds up our faith and helps people to continue in prayer for you. Okay, that's, that's enough about that for now. But there's one other thing we need to look at. It's true, prayer is effective. It's true, it's powerful. It achieves, it achieves its objective. But God wants us to look at an example. And he gives us a wonderful example of a righteous person who prayed in a very powerful and effective way. Let's look at it. Verses 17 through 18. Elijah was a man just like us. Just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Now, I want the anointing that says, Lord, don't let it snow for three and a half years. I want that anointing. I want a double portion of that anointing. It's not going to snow for the next three and a half years. That would be nice. I guess I don't have that kind of faith. No, I'm being silly. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, that is three and a half years later, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Now, he says this is a man just like us. A righteous man who prayed powerfully and effectively was just like us. He might be saying, wait a minute, Pastor Tim, I'm not like Elijah, Elijah the prophet. Yeah, but Elijah's a lot like you. You might be surprised how much he's like you and how much we're like him. God has given us these examples in his word to show us that prayer is powerful, even and especially when we're not. That is, when, even when we're not being faithful. See, Elijah proves that anyone can pray powerfully. You know something? Elijah wasn't someone special. He wasn't someone different than any one of us, and the Bible says so right there. James says it. He was a man whose life was filled with fear, with doubt, and with failure. He was. Let me give you a little taste. After being used so mightily and praying so powerfully, he ran away in fear from Jezebel. After experiencing God's miraculous provision, he doubted God's protection. After being given the power over life itself, raising someone from the dead, he would have preferred to die and said so. After being called by God to be his prophet, all he wanted to do was quit. And after experiencing God's awesome power, he just wanted to be left alone. Now, does that sound like you? Because it sounds like me. 
But he was a man just like you or me. He was just a person who prayed powerfully and effective when God called him to pray. So just because you have inconsistency in your life and just because you're not the greatest person on earth or the holiest Christian, don't give up on prayer. Don't think that you're not holy enough to pray. Prayer can be powerful and effective in Christ's righteousness when you're doing the right things, when you're confessing your sin. Guess what? Prayer is powerful and effective just like it was in the life of Elijah. Elijah proves that anyone can experience the power of prayer in their lives. He was able to withhold the rain in Israel through prayer. God had called him to be the vessel by which he chastised his people, and God had given him the power to accomplish his will on earth. And he's given us that power too. Elijah was able to deliver Israel from starvation after three and a half years without rain. And he did it how? Through prayer. He prayed, and then you remember he prayed, and he prayed, and then the cloud formed, and then the rain came. Pretty cool. You can check this out in 1 Kings 17 and 1 Kings 18. God had called him to be the vessel by which he chastised his people, but also the vessel by which he delivered his people. And again, God had given him that power, the power to accomplish his will on earth. He's given that power to us. You know, we're also called to be his vessels, and we've been empowered by God to do his will. And his will is that we pray. So it's true. Our faith is powerful in prayer. In closing, in these last two verses, we shift gears just a little bit. Faith is not only powerful in suffering, which we looked at last week, powerful in prayer, which we've just looked at. It's powerful in truth. In truth. Not a lot of truth out there right now. A lot of truth is being silenced. A lot of of what's true is being shushed. If you look for truth, what's the truth about the side effects of this vaccine? Shh, don't say anything. What's the truth about that? What's the truth about the shh, don't say anything? If you try to get the truth out there, you might get banned from sharing the truth. But faith is powerful in truth. But not a truth about things like government conspiracies and things. The truth of the gospel. I think we're already seeing that that truth is being silenced, aren't we? But here's the truth. The gates of hell can't prevail against the church. And you know what? Here's the truth. His truth can never be silenced. Amen? Amen? So faith is powerful in truth. Here, let's see what it says. My brothers, in verse 19, if one of you should wander from the truth... And someone should bring him back. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Notice it starts with if if, if one of you should be, or one of you should wander from the truth. Let's, Let's think this through for a minute. What this tells us is that God has called us to bring those of us that wander from the truth back to the truth. Called us to bring back those of us that wander from the truth. That's our calling. Now, you can wander from the truth having heard it and then you reject it, or you can wander from the truth having received it and then sort of no longer want to hear it. We call that person maybe backslidden. It's possible for us as Christians to wander from the truth of God's word. You bet it is. Look at most churches today. They've wandered very far from the truth of God's word. They don't preach it. They don't believe it. They defy it. They do things that are in conflict with it, promote heresies. So what are we supposed to do about it? Well, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, bring him back. That's what we're called to do. See, by preaching the truth, we're looking to bring people back to the truth. That's why we need to preach truth. We wander from the truth when we allow ourselves to be deceived. We wander from the truth when we choose to do what we know is wrong. A lot of people don't want to hear the truth because they want to continue to do what they like, which they know is wrong. We also wander from the truth and we refuse to call sin what God calls sin. That's another way you can wander from the truth. Not just being deceived, not just doing what you know is wrong, but here's the big one, not calling sin what God calls sin. I think you guys know me pretty well. You know? I made a career out of calling sin, sin, okay? This is, my, this is what God has called me to do from the pulpit. Whatever the Bible says is sin is sin, end of discussion, amen? 
I don't need to go through the list of all the things that are sin, but you know my point. Now, having said that, we're almost home here. It is also possible for us as Christians to bring wanderers back to the truth of God's word. So while it's true for that, that some can wander away, it's also true that we can bring them back. We bring wanderers, I like that, wanderers, we bring wanderers back to the truth by telling them the truth about their sin. What? Yeah, telling them the truth about their sin. Well, you can't do that, Pastor Tim. They might leave. They may not want to hear it. Well, how are you going to bring them back if they don't know where they got to go? Isn't it amazing? The church has abandoned the word of God and abandoned telling people sin is sin. How are you going to get anybody back to, to, to where they need to be? Return to the truth of God's word if you don't preach the word. And how are you going to get someone to confess sin if you don't say what you're doing is sin? I don't know. That seems pretty simple to me, pretty logical. We bring wanderers back to the truth by telling them the truth about their sin. But we bring wanderers back to the truth by telling them the truth about God's love and his forgiveness of sin. We bring wanderers back to the truth by telling them the truth about the cross of Christ. Amen? that he died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day and is coming again to judge the living and the dead, that we put our faith in him, we confess our sins to him, and he cleanses us, he forgives us. That's the truth of God's love, but it starts with sin. You can't preach the gospel of God's grace without preaching the truth about sin. It can't be done. You take sin out, it's no longer the gospel. You take God's love out, it's no longer the gospel. Then it's just condemnation. We bring wanderers back to the truth by telling them the truth about repentance. You can repent, confess your sins, and come to God, and he will receive you and forgive you and love you for all eternity. Amen? That's how we bring people back. That's what James wants us to do. And notice what he says finally in verse 20. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's an encouragement to do everything we've already talked about. God has called us to turn sinners from the error of their ways. You know, how many of you guys remember those pictures of Times Square or certain cities where someone would walk around with a sandwich board? Repent, the end is near. That's part of the message. Not all of the message, but that's part of the message. Repent. Or God loves you. Repent. The end is near. Might be a more complete message. But where are the preachers and the Christians preaching that message of repentance anymore? But that's how we bring people away from the error of their ways. You know, it's really, really, really easy right now to look at all the people living in sin and just say something like this. Well, when God comes back, they're going to get theirs. It's really easy to be like, oh, I can't wait for the Lord to return. Those people are going to be on Brimstone Beach. That is not what we're called to do. We have a little bit of time left with these people who are in error. And what we should be doing is turning them back to the truth. The preaching of the gospel. We can't make them change their minds, but we can give them everything they need to do so. Amen? It is possible... For us as Christians to turn sinners from their sinful life. I've seen it. Hey, it happened to me. Hey, I was a pretty big sinner. And if I could, not that I don't sin anymore, but if I could turn from my lifestyle before I came to Christ and be here today preaching the word, anybody can. And that goes for many of you too. I know. I know your testimonies. Sinners, what are sinners? They're people that wander aimlessly through their life. They're people that have a wrong opinion concerning morals and conduct. They're people that actively participate in behavior that God calls sin, and that's why we tell them the truth. It is possible for us as Christians to save the souls of sinners from death. That's what it says there. That's what James says. I mean, if you had a way to save someone from death, wouldn't you, wouldn't you do that? Wouldn't you help them? And you do. From eternal death, from the second death, this isn't the death, the physical death that each of us will surely experience because we're all going to die one day. This death is what will take place after we die physically and our souls leave our body. This death is eternal damnation and separation from God's love for all eternity. That's the death we're talking about. That's the death you can be saved from. And as far as covering over a multitude of sins, it is also and finally possible for us as Christians to cover over a life that is filled 
with sin. See, all of you have been covered. You know the word covered in the Old Covenant means atonement? It's the same word, covered, atoned. But in the New Testament, the word for atonement is a little different. It means to do away with. But he's using the Old Testament language here to cover over a multitude of sins, to make it clear, to wash away your sins. To cover over is to hide, to veil, to remove the knowledge of something. God hides our sins behind his back, the scripture says. He separates them as far as the east is from the west. Cast them into the sea of forgetfulness. That's what God wants to do with your sin through the cross of Jesus Christ. To cover over is to allow the grace of God to apply the blood of Christ to our lives. That's what it means to cover over. To cover over is to be forgiven by God in the person of Jesus Christ for all eternity. And that's how James leaves us with his book. But the fact that faith is powerful in truth, and we have the truth. Never forget that. The world needs the truth. Preach the truth about sin. Preach the truth about God's love. Preach the truth about salvation. Preach the truth of the gospel. And you will give opportunity to those who are in error and in sin to come to Jesus Christ and be saved. You know, I want to close this with one verse from the book of Daniel in chapter 12, verse 3. In Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, we read, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this study. We thank you for your word. We ask that these words would be etched upon our hearts, that we continue to remember why we're here, that we would remember that our prayers are powerful and effective. And may our faith be powerful in prayer. But may our faith be powerful in truth too. May we not shy away from the truth of the gospel and who you are and the plan of salvation and the fact that we need to repent of our sins. May this message of truth always reach out from the pulpits of God-fearing believers. And may it come from our lips as we interact with those that are in error and in sin. To your glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.